This is Superfood Sundays, a plant-based podcast with Chef Lynette. Okay, I want to know from Carl, your husband and co-founder of Doozy Pots, if it's ice cream weather, because he is from the place where it is definitely not <laughs> ice cream weather kind of ever. What do you think? Yeah, I can confirm it is definitely ice cream weather now. Although I will say in the winter, deep winter here in Cleveland, we see still pretty strong sales and lines out the door for ice cream places. So they really like their ice cream in Ohio, whatever the weather. But yeah, I think right now... Right now is a very good time, for sure. So I'm excited to dig into where you guys have expanded and get into a little bit of the business part. I want to hear just from a foodie point of view, because anyone who is in the food business has to be some sort of foodie, maybe. We'll we'll see. That might be. (laughs) Most definitely. (laughs) Most definitely. So you are currently located in Ohio, so it's definitely not breakfast time even though i have definitely i've i've eaten doozy pots at nine o'clock in the morning but (laughs) (laughs) i want to know from you all what's on your plate what what do you eat this morning what are you planning on eating today what are you meal prepping it's sunday what you got oh boy i was just saying as we started this that i'm not really i love breakfast food but i'm not an early morning eater so got up did a workout did some stuff outside i just had some solely dried mango which is so good and so addictive and i'm having a lime spindrift with that and then i'm probably gonna have a daily harvest meal Sometimes when you're super busy and you're running a business i love to cook i love to cook all the time but having something that's super healthy and I cook it and I always juice it up myself, like add different seasonings to whatever's in there. So I'm probably going to have one of their harvest bowls and it's grilling weather. So grilling some veggies tonight and probably doing a big salad. Okay. All right. So not only is it ice cream weather, it's a grilling weather. Yeah, that pretty much comes hand in hand. I'm about to accidentally plug a lot of brands just because of what I ate for. Go. But actually, Kirsten, you're gonna, it's a local baker that makes this amazing whole grain and seed bread. I have an Instagram bread dealer in Cleveland mm-hmm. that I found uh, kind of mid-2020 COVID times when I got sick of baking my own bread. She makes amazing breads and she makes a very... You can't really find it here. It's a German style. She calls it dank rye. And it's like a fermented sourdough, really dark brown loaf with sunflower seeds in it and pepitas. And it comes in like a square block and it's probably a five pound loaf of bread. She now has a website, but before you would place your order through Instagram and go pick it up on her cute little porch. She had to have a locked cupboard there because the squirrels were getting into the bread if she just left it on the table. So she has a whole little system. So support your local bread dealer. She's known as what, Wild Glory? Yeah, right? she's called so Wild Glory she, Bakery. If anyone in the Cleveland area listening, then Wild Glory Bakery is, is the go-to. And that was with some arugula and some Miyoko's sun-dried tomato spread and some corn rind queso, a plant-based queso, with some pulp pantry chips on the side. So, okay, and, you're just going to talk about all our friends, right? Is that yeah, what this is? <laughs> and, and some, and some Haven's, Haven's Kitchen chimichurri on top. So that was what I constructed for myself for lunch. I'll oh, be man. honest and say, Kirst, I usually eat whatever Kirsten's making, but as she said today, she didn't really eat much. So I, I went ahead and made something random and it was really delicious. I do 99% of the cooking. Oh, and I think I've been cooking since I was probably four years old, whether it was like peeling carrots or hand whipping whipped cream. So I'm just a lot faster and it comes very <laughs> naturally to me, whereas um very good at following recipes, but it's like a full day thing so I if have you're to hungry have all my prep done. i have to yeah i'm a much more of a slow burner it's interesting you say that you've been in the kitchen since you were younger and i really got a kick out of looking for the perfect photo for the podcast and i'm like okay this is the first time we have to pick two people and i'm going through the whole thing i'm like these photos of kirsten in the kitchen at different <laughs> stages that kind of brings me to my next question of just early influences. Carson, I know that this is a very easy question for you to answer. So I definitely want to hear from Carl. But yeah. So I, growing up, my my dad was a chef. My parents had restaurants. My mom worked in the wine business. And we were always just around food, whether that was like 
helping my grandpa make bread or in the kitchen with one of my grandmothers or my parents and working in my dad's restaurant from the time I was probably 12 years old, plating dessert, hostessing, doing prep work. And also my dad just, he cooked all the time. So on the weekend in the morning, he was like, okay, you and your brother have to make breakfast. And we were probably six, seven years old, learning how to make scrambled eggs or French toast and just knowing our way around the kitchen. That's where that started. And then I think in high school, middle school, high school, I became much more aware of kind of what was healthy and what's in food and reading magazines and books and stuff like that. And then when it came time to apply for college, I was like, wow, cool. You can study food and nutrition and food science and the there's a route other than working in a restaurant, which is a very demanding. There's a route to working with food that's not that. So when I was looking to apply to college, I was trying to decide between food science and exercise science. Some days I wish I chose exercise science because I eat ice cream all day. But yeah, that's kind of where I got my start. And looking back, like my dad also did some product development. And as a kid, he worked on developing Uncrustables, like those peanut butter and jelly are you serious frozen things <laughs> yeah so we were like we i don't know i was probably 10 and he was like you can have a pool party and bring all your friends over as long as you guys sit and i bring out the camcorder and you taste all of these like peanut butter and jelly things and other smuckers products and then like we'll video and now i'm like that was a free focus group. oh my waiting for my compensation <laughs> <laughs> literally i'm listening to you and i'm just adding up how much that actually in reality would cost that we pay so much money for just R&D. Wow. Give your dad a high five. That was really Yeah, sick. he's a very good peanut butter and jelly. And he's a very good chef, but he he really does a peanut butter and jelly. And it was funny. He'd be like, I don't have any food at the house except for what we're doing in the R&D kitchen. So there's like a 30 pound box of Uncrustables or you can come to the restaurant. So that was often my childhood of what we got to eat or we cook for ourselves. Something that you just said that I actually read when I was doing research for this episode about really finding other ways to work in food other than a restaurant. And that's something that really I hold near and dear to my heart because I worked in restaurants as well, front and back of the house. And I don't think people really understand how burned out that you could get. Are there things growing up that you saw with your parents or your dad and specifically both of them obviously in food that really shaped anything stand out in specific where you can look back and say yeah that's one of the reasons why I was just like no I'm not doing that I'm gonna go over here in food science or maybe fitness science yeah I started working in the restaurant when I was 12 and subsequently worked in other restaurants and seeing family friends it's not a family friendly lifestyle at all your hours are often okay the restaurant opens at five so you're in at three and you're home at one two o'clock in the morning and my dad did that for a ton of a lot of his life and it's just not like a oftentimes not a healthy lifestyle. And there's just a, a very challenging balance there. And I love some of my happiest memories are working in restaurants, but I just knew that I still wanted to work with food in a more chilled way. And I had seen kind of his career and his work that he had done with product development. And I thought, okay, this is really cool. You can have a role where you create food products, or you work in food microbiology, and you get to make food for tons of people to try. There was those two pieces. I had seen both sides of it and realized that the sort of product development and R&D side was actually probably the more stable one. Yeah, for sure. For sure. If you really want to just spread everything that you have all over, it actually works better in mass production of food as opposed to say, hey, I'm just going to really do this small thing for this local group. It's no, I want everybody to try this ice cream. I think that's exactly great. <laughs> so great. Carl, on the other mm -hmm. side of the pond, while all of this was happening yeah. in Vermont, what were you doing? What were you eating? How was it going? So I think I've always love food uh, and I think there are a couple of main reasons for that I always loved a really diverse range of food and firstly my my family background is Indian but with Persian ancestry so immediately that's two massive 
uh, food cultures that have influenced my eating. And then I grew up in London, which obviously is a really cosmopolitan city. So many cultures there with so much food on offer. And so that was a great thing for me. I grew up with a real love of food. And I think the main reason, though, I have to give credit to my mum, because she, when she was younger, was an air stewardess on for Air India, the Indian airline. And so as a young lady, she would travel all around the world and that picked her, that, that made her dive into all the different food cultures that she visited. And so when I was growing up, she was adamant that I had to try foods from all over the world whenever I could. So she was the one who made me try most of the things. And I think that's what really gave me my, my love of food. And then I'll be totally honest, I ate terribly in my teens and my probably my early 20s. I was eating really badly. I was stress eating and eating all the wrong foods. And that wasn't a great journey for me. And I think one of the one of the catalysts to the main catalyst to changing the way that I eat and moving to a more plant based, more fully plant based diet was Justin and all the knowledge that she brought about how to eat well, to eat, still eat enjoyably, but how to eat well for yourself. And I, I had separately, I had an interest in in sustainability and and uh, climate change and all sorts of things like that. And I had a light bulb moment meeting her, being like, "This, I, I need to stop this, both for my own health uh, and for wider reasons too." So I guess that's my sort of food story in a nutshell. Wow, that's really cool that your mother really expose you the way that she did because at the end of the day we start to think of traveling and how many moons ago people were literally sailing around the world for spices so what does that look like in the in the future and that's really allowing children and people in general to really try different foods and different flavors and different textures to really get excited about it it seems like you guys were made to be with each other obviously and that brings me to how you both got together because Carl you're from London Kirsten you're from the United States and yeah yeah so in 2014 I was still working for Ben and Jerry's and we were just kicking off the product development for the vegan line and I had the opportunity to move to the UK to work at the Unilever Global Development Center for ice cream which is as exciting as it sounds. So I packed up and I left Burlington, Vermont, which is a tiny little city. And I had grown up in Vermont on a great adventure to go spend nine months in the UK, really laying the foundation for the vegan lines in the Unilever portfolio. And I happened to have a friend who was living in London who I'd grown up with in our town of 4,000 people in Vermont, We had been friends since we were five and he was working over in London as well. And he had met Carl a few times. Carl went to university in the US and and they connected. And then my friend said, hey, come meet my friends and go out together. And the rest, as they say, is history. So we, we met through a mutual friend in London, which was great. Carl at that point was a lawyer. So we had a very different background than I did, but we really bonded over I think our first date was we went to well, dinner. I, the first, the, the <laughs> asked her out for the first time was I think I said something like I'd like to see if I can impress a food scientist with my choice of restaurant. I think it went well. I we picked a, a a great spot in London called the Grain Store, which sadly is no more. I think, but was a wood restaurant in London in Kings Cross, which is a kind of newly developed area restoring lots of old warehouses and things. So it was a pretty cool spot. And I think I brought a chili plant as a. Yes. Yeah, instead of flowers, he brought yeah. me like a, a mini chili plant what? to grow in my apartment. Are you <laughs> serious? You well, know what, he <laughs> what he didn't know is that I was, I'm better now, but I was quite spice over. My background is German, English, Welsh, Irish. So I have a, a pretty tame palate when it comes to spice. But through both Carl's mom and his dad and himself, I've been spice trained and really opened my palate to a whole whole new world of um. uh, spice combos. <laughs> the chili plant that started it all. It sounds like really the perfect combination for not only a couple romantically, but then professionally, because if you're too much alike, then there's no learning and then there's no growth. And I think that for you to have grown your palate (laughs) into more spicy things. And then also just Carl, from your perspective, coming from business, buttoned up, legal 
to literally doozy pot land. And I think that's what makes you guys' relationship re really exciting. I've been fortunate enough to meet you guys in person and feed both of you. You've been over to the house, which is really <laughs> awesome. And just saw the dynamic and stuff. So yeah, it's, it, the, the love is definitely there. Let's move a little bit into really the business aspect of things and how all of that came together because we see over time, Couples that are doing business together, it seems like it go one or two ways, really well or really bad. So I'd love to know how it all comes together because the things that when you're starting a business, regardless of whatever your relationship is, your professional relationship is with your significant other, they become at the least a really big supporter of the business. And a lot of times, even if they're not as integral as you guys are together, they are helping put stickers on things or checking what's cooking or what's happening. So how did it become where it's, no, we're going to seriously do this together? So we were living in London. I had left Ben and Jerry's and was working for a smoothie and juice company called Innocent in London. And I had been doing ingredient research and got so excited about hemp from a nutrition standpoint, from a sustainability standpoint. And I really, I thought this would make a great ice cream. And I started playing in the kitchen and I told Carl, I think I want to quit my job to start a plant-based ice cream company using hemp. And he, as a lawyer, was initially quite skeptical. So he was like, I'm going to do my research and come back and yeah, let's see very skeptical. And then he came back and was fully on board. So I spent about a year doing product development in our kitchen in London. And then once we got the product to a point where we thought, okay, there's potential here, we decided to pack things up in 2019 and move from London back to the US to kick this off. And we landed in Cleveland and we launched into the market about six months before COVID hit in 2020. So I think it's a testament to the strength of our relationship because if you can live with your spouse, work with your spouse, have a business with your spouse, make it through a pandemic three years long, it says a lot. You've got to have a very strong foundation with your partner before you can say, okay, let's start a business together because being brutally honest, a, a food startup is not easy in the best of times and when the going gets rough it can be really challenging but it's always just so nice to know that you have someone who's on this journey with you who's got your back and believes in in what you're doing wholeheartedly so cheers to us because it's been a long <laughs> but we feel like we're just getting started I think oh for sure Carl what was your initial skepticism what did you go and hide away to discover, to come back saying, hey, are, yeah, I'm down. Well, first of all, I think that something about both our backgrounds and, and we both come from kind of entrepreneurial families. And I think when we've pretty early on when we met and learned about each other's love for food, I think that and that entrepreneurial background, I feel like we both knew even at that time that it was still two years, three years before Doozy Pots became even a thought. But I think we knew that we would one day have a food related business together. It was just in the background. That was always something we'd want to do. And then I think when Kirsten brought the hemp idea along, and obviously I knew she was fantastic at what she did. There there weren't there probably wasn't anybody of her age at that time who had the expertise specifically in plant-based ice cream that she did. And she she said, I, I really have this idea. It keeps coming back to me. I think I can do it. And I knew nothing about hemp. I knew vaguely what it was a plant. It was part of the cannabis family. But beyond that, I didn't know anything about it. Also, I didn't think it was legal to grow at that time, <laughs> yeah. so, which it wasn't. So that was the kind of research that I wanted to do just for my own, you know, satisfaction, as it were. As Kirsten said, that's my that's what I've been trained to do as a lawyer. So I just went and did that. But I looked into what was happening, in, particularly in the US, with the kind of legalization of hemp movement and generally looked at what the market dynamics were for the plant-based movement in general and then how a hemp-based product would fit into the category and i think all of those things look really promising and then also as kirsten mentioned i was confident from her nutritional functional side of things was taken care of there's nothing i could really research on that except to just trust her and, and taste the products that she made them but on the sustainability side really delving into that a little bit and understanding why hemp can be such a good crop to grow for the earth that it grows in is it, that that was really cool to me as well. And I thought, you know what, this lines up with everything that I personally wanted to do, you know, have a sustainable product and business, uh, be in business for ourselves, work together as husband and wife. And, and that was 
uh, yeah, I was sold once I'd done a little bit of initial research. And then together, we obviously looked at, would it be better to launch in the UK or, or look at the US? Mm. And, and how that kind of happened. To be honest, it was really, I think it was the, the scale of the opportunity was just bigger in the US. The excitement around both plant-based foods and hemp in the US was you know, palpable at that time. Not to say it wasn't there in the UK, but it just seemed that there was more of a well-defined movement um, and interest in the US at the time. And to, to grow a food business, is, as many of you will know, is tough. The, the margins aren't high. It's a grind. You have to grow to a pretty significant scale to have a sort of financially comfortable life. And that's obviously everyone wants to have some level of, of financial achievement and comfort as they live. We were giving up pretty good jobs to, to, to do it. So... I think it became a no-brainer of just the size of the opportunity in the U.S. was bigger. Plus, Kirsten had a great you know, personal network there as well, and I think that counts for something. So those are the things that came together to make us make the move. Mm. So when it comes to just dividing the responsibilities, obviously from the background that you've given us, it's pretty clear on paper who's doing what, where obviously you're more of the legal business side of things, but Kirsten, not only did you go to school for food science, there was also some business as well from Cornell. I would love to know with that, what are some of the more unexpected aspects of your professional relationship where it ends up flipping, where maybe Carl is more of the kind of creative kitchen person or certain type of yeah. ideas and things and then on the other end of the spectrum maybe Kirsten's looking at something that Carl would maybe lean into more like what would have been some surprising things along the lines of your growth oh it's a quick versus I when we do any taste testing I eat way more than she does okay <laughs> I pretend I'm a customer and so I eat you know a whole, not a whole pint, maybe a whole pint sometimes to see how that feels. So I probably end up eating more ice cream than she does, which is which you might find unusual since she's the ice cream scientist. But that's a really good question. I think there are one example that jumps to mind is Kirsten does all of our social media stuff. Now, that's not something I would have wanted to lean into, to be honest, or known how to lean into at all. But that involves doing all of the analytics of website traffic, how ads are performing, all of that stuff that's where you maybe classify something more analytical. She does all of that. As you noted, it's fallen into the obvious buckets. But then there are things that branding, strategy, general strategy, those kinds of things that, that we just come together on and, and do together. And, and sometimes it's one of us pushing more than the other one. Remember that the other person's on your side always, no matter what they think about the kind of business problem you have in front of you and that you have their you know, unwavering support and that nothing's personal or it shouldn't be personal. That's, I think, the most important thing that we've learned. And it took some learning for sure. I'm still learning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, took, it took some learning, but I think we've come a long way in, in, on that front. And you just have to remember that it's really not, it's not a personal thing. It's a viewpoint on business and you're trying to problem solve and we have two different perspectives. And so we're just trying to solve the problem at the end of the day. And as long as we don't carry over any disagreements in, in the, on the business front into, the, into personal lives, which is tough. But as long as you, you, you do that, that, I think that's the most important thing to having a kind of harmoni harmonious relationship. But I'll say, do you have any examples of stuff that, I don't know, that's a really good question. No, I think we've each stayed in our lane a little bit. Carl has just really become a champion of logistics and warehousing and trucking routes which is funny because carl doesn't know how to drive thanks for uh bringing it. I a way of working uh, that into the conversation no but you know what though like you have to give grace to anyone that grows up in a really major city with an incredible public transportation system everything is super dense because i know a lot of new yorkers who don't know how to drive they drive terrible yeah, but I, I get it <laughs> The issue with that is I don't live in London anymore, so I think I yeah, need no, to fix no, that no. problem. <laughs> now um, you have to learn how to drive, not only in general, but now you have to learn how to drive on the opposite way. Yeah, so you, I'm you, just going to skip a few steps ahead and get a CDL license and drive a frozen <laughs> truck of ice cream around the country. That's probably the best thing. Yeah, definitely. I have been keeping up with just the little tour that you guys have been doing in the past uh, few months, just going from shop to shop and really being hands-on uh, with the product. And I think that's something that 
people getting into the food business don't realize that it doesn't end once you've sent everything to the manufacturer, to the co-packer. You really have to get out there in the streets and make sure that your product is out there. It's in the right place. I know earlier you mentioned some other food brands and other mutual friends of ours. And I find myself sometimes in Erewhon with Pulp Pantry. Shout out to Caitlin. If I see something that's not right, like I'll move it around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've built it friends in the space, obviously. And absolutely, you have that, oh my gosh, that's not looking great on shelf. Let's do something about it. Let's re-merchandise it or talk to a manager or just buy a bunch of the product just to support them. That's so, that's so yeah, that's uh, there's definitely a little team that does. And we get, we're really lucky. We get messages from other founders. Shout out in particular to, to Tal of Fun Sesame's Tahini. She's always whenever she's in a store she's always sending us pictures of what what our product looks like if you know there's some ice build up in the freezer she's texting us and that's really nice because you need that you need all the support you can get as you said to try and yeah make sure everything's looking good all around the you know the country and all the stores you're in is, is hard so that is really nice and we're grateful for that and there's a saying that it's actually pretty easy to get on the shelf with a retailer it's very hard to get off the shelf repeatedly customers baskets we've been in the store for six months and and someone would shop the category has not noticed us that really shows there's a lot of work to do in terms of building awareness and you've got to work with your retailer partners your grocery store partners to set the right promotions to attract that new customer who probably hasn't picked up your product yet especially during the pandemic we definitely saw people would go in want to spend as little time in a grocery store as possible get what they knew and come out so there was not a lot of exploration happening and really us, us pounding the ground and, and touring around all our stores is really to just try and get our product in front of customers. And then the quality of the product, hopefully at that point, can do the job for us and get in terms of getting them back. When it comes to just development for the product in general, how has that changed? Yeah, we so we launched into Sprouts last summer and we were hand packing all of our pints with my dad, Carl and myself. And we could do maybe four or 500 pints in an eight hour day. It's a very manual process. And as we grew, we were able to find a co-packer on the West Coast who small batch, but they can do about 10,000 pints in a day. So that really helps us support that. So things opened up more and we were able to go out and, and be there for every single production run that we do and, and really fine tune. Because every step when you move from one production method to the next, your product changes. It's a living yeah. and breathing thing. Yeah. So making sure we can be there to make sure we're delivering exactly the quality we want. Things have opened up a little bit more in the past year. And then also now, like last year, we weren't able, no grocery stores were allowing sampling at all. And now grocery stores have opened back up. We've had more events to be able to go to. And we've really just found more opportunities to get out in the wild and connect with people and have them try our products which is the most important thing because if you have a beautifully branded product but it doesn't taste great, that's only going to get you so far. And being able to talk to people and have them taste it in front of you is also really great feedback to help us improve the brand, improve packaging, make small tweaks to our product just to make sure if someone leaves a comment over and over again, we say, okay, let's take that to heart. And how can we have that help us drive future development and sort of renovation of our product. When it comes to just production and scaling, what has been, I guess, the bad part about growing and not being able to have that control? Like, how has that kind of come about? Because ice cream is very tricky. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. And then for all of those interested in creating an insanely perishable product, what should they be looking out for? <laughs> so ice cream is... A really a magical food product because it's a product that's in three phases. It's solid ice, it's liquid, the sort of matrix that doesn't get frozen, that keeps it soft and scoopable, and gas, the air that's whipped into it. So there's not a lot of foods we eat that have that kind of sort of chemistry profile. It's very finicky. If it melts a little, we all know if you leave the ice cream on the counter for too long and then you eat a little bit and it gets really melty and you, you put it back in the freezer when you have it again, it's never as good as it was that first time. <laughs> and you think about the cold chain of it goes from the production facility onto a truck and then it sits on a 
dock and then the, it gets stocked on the shelves. And there's just so many opportunities for that kind of melt and refreeze thing to go on. So that can be a challenge. But I think as you scale, it's great that you can do bigger runs, but it's like the problem that you had where one batch was off and, and maybe you made 50 pints that weren't perfect. If one batch is off, you might have now 5,000 pints that aren't perfect. And mm. we've run into that. Not great. As we were trying to scale, we could probably actually have a whole other podcast. On <laughs> I know. <laughs> the, the six to 12 months that we took scaling. But one of the most important things with ice cream for great quality ice cream, and this is why it's really hard to make it at home, is that you want to freeze your pints as fast as possible. And an at-home freezer doesn't get cold enough to do that. A manufacturer, on the other hand, in theory, has the capability to do that. One of our first production runs, we were there and we came back the next morning and we wanted to taste the pints we ran the day before. And they were soft. Not just, oh, that's a little, it was like... Wendy's frosty texture. Oh, and it gets all bubbly and pasty. Yeah, not not supposed to happen. And we started went went into a panic. And is the freezer gone down? And do we have to call maintenance? And turns out someone had shut the fans off in the blast freezer because they work in there building a pallet, and they were cold. So by shutting the fans off, it warmed it up and made it easier for them to work, but it ruined a decent amount of product. So that was a challenge. And you think, okay, someone who works in an ice cream factory should know that the most important step is the freezing, not the most important, but yeah, there's that quick freezing. And that didn't happen. If the freezer went down when we were doing it by hand, that might be a few trays of product, not a pallet of product. So the bigger you get, the larger the problems are. Yeah. And I I think the the lesson the, the the difficulty in scaling from doing it yourself in your own kitchen to the you know co-packer doing the manufacturing for you is the biggest change is one of control. When we're doing it ourselves, everything's under our control. We move it to the freezer, which can we can see the temperature of the freezer. We if something goes wrong, it's on us to fix it. And you at least you have that element of control. When you go to a manufacturing partner, that's all transferred to them. It's all under their control, their system. You have to trust in 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 that all working. I think the biggest lesson is for anyone out there who's thinking of having their own food business or who has one and wants to scale up is do not ever leave it just to your manufacturing partner to do the run. Don't just have the ingredients sent there, have them do everything. You're not even on site or you send someone else to go. Go be there yourself. Ask questions. No question is too stupid. Why is that door open to the freezer? That's fine. Ask that question. Don't assume that the people there know exactly what they're doing. Usually they do, but they're busy, they're frantic, all sorts of things are going on in a factory. Go be there. You're the only person who's going to have the level of concern for your product at the same level that you do. They, they care, but it's not on them ultimately. So uh, we're very lucky in that sense because Kirsten has experience do, doing that. She's been in factories for Ben & Jerry's her whole life. So she's a great person to do that. But even if you don't have that experience, go be at the manufacturing and ask questions. Make sure that they're doing what they're meant to be doing or if you, something seems off, question it because ultimately as Kirsten says if there's an error the scale of that error once you're working with a manufacturing partner is pretty painful yeah. and we have despite Kirsten's expertise and nothing to do with her fault that just things go wrong it just happens yeah, yeah we have those problems too so yeah, try, try and minimize them <laughs> with such an experience with Ben and Jerry's a quick story it was funny I was so obsessed um, with doozy pots when I first had it and I was visiting family in Chicago and I'm like going all around where can I get it from and there was no doozy pots yet but there was Ben and Jerry's and so <laughs> for those that know me I can be like a troll <laughs> but it's with love so I go into the shop and I get the best vegan Ben and Jerry's that I could find. I post it on Insta and I tag her and I'm like, see what you got me out here doing? I'm eating this Ben and Jerry's when I really want doozy pots. And she totally responds, yeah, but I made that one. Whatever. True. <laughs> because it's true. You really had a huge hand uh, in this other company. And it makes me think about what Carl just mentioned that yes you have all this experience but still things happen I would love to know what has been one of the most unexpected learnings that you've gotten doing this on your own that you would have thought that you knew everything but you actually didn't yeah it's um it's that thing slaps me in the face 
probably on a daily basis. So before I worked very cross-functionally, but you might have a team of like between 20 and 40 people ranging from finance to social media to your manufacturing plant partners and microbiology. I think my biggest challenge is I'm a creative person and I get excited about doing product development and the fun parts of it, but like writing a purchase order for an ingredient and then the amount of follow-up that needs to happen with certain suppliers. I used to be able to hand all of that off to our procurement team and that's now me. It's just learning a lot about what are you good at? What are you not great at? Any of the things you don't like to do, you push them down your to-do list Mm -hmm. until some sort of firestorm and you're like, okay, I have to do this now. And it's, I think Carl and I both have the discussion of, okay, when we get to a point where we can find someone to to help us or hire, or whether it's a consultant or a part-time thing, like what, where are our gaps? I went to business school. I know how to build a PL, but I just don't feel like I'm expert enough at it that it's something I want to take on. And you really start to know your lane and, and know where you want to dive deep as opposed to say, okay, can I do that? Well, yeah, absolutely. And then alternatively, what has been the most reassuring or reconfirming from your experience at Ben and Jerry's where basically you came over to Doozy Pots, yeah, I can do this in my sleep and nothing has changed? The product development process yeah. um, and scaling up. I just feel so comfortable being in a manufacturing facility, working with the teams and co-packers are in high demand. So being able to go to a co-packer and know what you're talking about, they love talking and we can have a conversation because a lot of times people there were a couple years ago co-packers once or twice a week were getting a phone call of can you make me an ice cream so I can be the next halo top (laughs) and they were like if I could make something that was the next halo top I wouldn't be talking they're able to we're able to go in and have a legit conversation and just get going with doing production and and stuff like that so I think that's been really my sweet spot and people know okay you're legit and you can work with me on this it's not going to be a a big hand-holding experience yeah i can see how that's really easy for you it's it's actually an awesome sight to see her working with 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 a manufacturing partner like it's just as you just said i I, as an outsider i can i'm like what is how does this work i don't get it at all (laughs) thankfully it's been uh, much because of kirsten's experience but i i do wonder sometimes how you know, how, how people, how other brands get over that hump when they don't have that level of expertise in the founding team. But obviously it's doable, but it, it's definitely, it can be a, a difficult process to navigate. Yeah, absolutely. So why him? So I initially was reading uh, scientific journal articles about sort of hemp hearts and the nutrition benefits of hemp. And it's got pretty much complete amino acid profile. It's got good fiber. It has an optimal omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. And I thought every single plant-based ice cream out there, even if it's an almond milk or uh, a cashew milk, everyone's using coconut oil, really high in saturated fat, very narrow melt point. And so I thought everyone's using either coconut oil or coconut milk. Why don't we use other plants? There are other fats out there that can get this job done. And Hemp hearts are really creamy. They've got good protein in them. And I just got really excited about the nutrition opportunity and how that might help create a great textured ice cream. And alongside the sustainability angle of hemp as a plant and hemp as a crop, my main goal is to say, hey, let's create delicious products to really pull hemp out of that dusty old health food store back corner that just has hemp milk and showcase it as a plant that people get excited about because it can be delicious and shout out to some of the other brands out there catalyst creamery in florida and grounded foods out in la who are doing hemp cheeses and there there's some really fun brands popping up in the last two years that use hemp and that's exciting to see people alongside us I remember I started working with pea protein in ice cream in 2013 and 2014 and pea protein wasn't in much. And now pea protein is like the darling of all plant-based foods. Pea protein is not the only plant-based protein. There's a bunch of other proteins to use and coconut's not the only fat. fat. Let's look at, okay, we're eating plant-based, but 
some people are eating a ton of coconut oil. Say you eat like plant-based cream cheese for breakfast and then you have a plant-based sandwich with cheese on it. And then you have ice cream and then you have a coconut milk latte. Like that all has coconut oil or coconut cream in it. And coconut's a great plant, but I think eating too much of one thing isn't great for us from a health perspective and from a, a planetary perspective. So our aim is to say, hey, let's champion this crop, make it taste great and teach people about new plants to be eating. Yeah. And then I think from the sort of, you know, market positioning lens, you, you know, people eat plant generally for one of three reasons or a combination of all three. Animal welfare to eat more healthily for themselves and to eat better for, for the planet and for the climate. And I think what's cool about hemp using hemp is it allows you to formulate products that appeal to those last two that appeal to be, be something a healthy product and a, that appeal to eating better for the planet. And I think so using hemp helps to create products that really meet the needs of that plant-based consumer. And that's, what's really cool about it, I think. And in, in our case, as Kirsten's mentioned, it's the, the lack of coconut in there, which means no saturated fat pretty much in our product versus what else is out there. And then hemp being one of the most sustainable crops that you can grow, especially on, in organic systems. And we use organic hemp. So I think we're really meeting the needs of people who are eating plant-based. And I think that's because of the hemp in the, in the formula. And it makes for a delicious product, which is still the most important thing when you're eating something. So once we looked at it from that perspective, it was like, yeah, this is really a, a worthwhile product to have in the marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the name Doozy Pots, like, <laughs> <laughs> I know where it comes from, but. So Doozy Pots was probably the third or fourth name we came up with for the brand. And we started with five leaves, which was a nod to the hemp leaves. Oh, that's uh, cute. Okay. Cute. And it was like kind of all like really like green and white, clean branding vibes and then we moved into Mellow, M-E-L-O-H, which was actually a nod to the OG plant-based ice cream, which was made post-World War II, called Mellorine, which was the the margarine of ice cream. Mm -hmm. uh, but it had a fun ring to it. <laughs> wait, wait, back it up. I didn't even know what the... Wait, wait what? Yeah, so it was <laughs> post-World War II... Instead of using dairy fat, they used milk or sometimes milk powder, but they replaced the dairy fat with coconut oil or plant-based oils. And I thought, okay, we're going to be the next generation of actual, like, good, healthy plant-based ice cream. And then we had ran with Mellow for a little bit, but we ran into some trademark issues based on some other products we were looking at doing. And it also made it feel, because we were using hemp, I think to, it would confuse people and make people like a CBD ice cream and our products don't have any THC or CBD. It's simply food grade hemp. So we didn't want to create that level of confusion. So then I was in the kitchen and I'm known to occasionally be a doozy pots and make a little bit of a mess. And, and doozy pots was a nickname that my grandmother called us when we were little. And it comes from the Italian saying to say pazza, which is you're crazy. So she would be like, don't be such a doozy pot. <laughs> so here we are being crazy making ice cream from him it's funny i looked up in the urban dictionary there's actually a definition for doozy pots in the urban dictionary and the urban dictionary i feel like probably is better than like webster's or the oxford dictionary <laughs> at this point in life but doozy pots a person who is more than a little eccentric usually <laughs> an artist or someone in the professional fine art field Acting crazy okay. and flighty manner while attempting to be creative and or productive. Example, <laughs> quote, he'll never get the project done on time. This guy is completely doozy pots by super stainless. <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> That's funny. That's that funny. is. Well, that covers. That really it. sums it all up. But it's <laughs> funny because we've had people say, hey, can I get a hat from you? Because you know, my grandma called us and my cousins and they're all from New Jersey and, and Long Island. And they're like, oh my God, my grandma used to call me a doozy pots too. Yeah, it's it it's catchy. Some it, people get a little bit confused. Like, oh, is this like Dippin' Dots? Or I thought this was boozy ice cream. But once they hear the story, everybody gets a good chuckle out of it. And doozy's non-urban dictionary meaning is something unique or outstanding of its kind. So we figured... Yeah. 
there was an element of fun and craziness to it because you have to have that to be trying to create ice cream from hemp. And then there was doozy being something pretty unique and, and good. And also it's an ownable word if there were other doozy products underneath it, a doozy pops or puds or whatever else we, we might want to do. It's a nice, ownable, fun word for a brand. And ultimately we're creating products that should be fun. It's still good yeah. for you planet, but it's got to be fun too. And so that's that name really stuck and we went with it. Yeah, it's perfect. Products, new products. Is there anything that you could share with us that's not obviously sensitive information about different ideas or different products or maybe even different collaborations that are coming down the pipeline that really will help to expand the brand? Now we are very focused on increasing brand awareness and increasing velocity in the stores that we're in. So right now, same four flavors. Because it's summer, we do tons of events and that's where I really get to let my creativity shine. So just did an event yesterday. We have a pink lemonberry flavor, which is our summer event flavor. Fruit gelato with a raspberry swirl and it sells out every time and it's so good and also did a, a golden vanilla chai with a chai masala blend from a woman we know who works out of the same commercial kitchen here called pure spices and so we collabed with her so when we do events we do lots of local stuff and we're working on some organic certification for this year mm, and nice I'm tying up some things on that because we do source all organic ingredients, but there's just a whole back end that needs to be done to be able to put that on pack. Yeah. And can't talk about some of the other projects I'm working on, but our goal is to make plant-based treats that are better for you and better for the planet. And I have some really fun things up my sleeve that I wish if I had a little more time and a lot more money that I could just you know, bring out to the world very quickly, but we'll get that. <laughs> we, that's not the reality. Yeah. But do keep an eye out for something. Hopefully things go this summer that might be available on our website, something that can go direct to, to consumers. So that is something exciting that we're working on and looks like will happen for the summer, but can't, unfortunately can't say more than that at the moment. But. Okay. 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 And the merch, how is the merch going? Because you do have a really <laughs> exciting name and it's one of those yeah. names that if it just said doozy pots, it would matter what it was because it's fun. But yeah, do yeah. you guys sell a lot of merch or give away a lot of merch? Do you know what? We, we give away a lot and I think we, we really should start selling some i'll be totally honest kirsten was really big into the merch side of things and i was a little skeptical of just in terms of budget and do we have the money to be spending on merch we got to spend it on our actual product and i was a bit of a stick in the mud but they have they, they've created such a big reaction that yeah that's changed my mind a little bit requests pretty much every week for for someone asking for some some merch so yes we are looking at doing some more of that and as long as we can source things that are really sustainably made and eco-friendly we have t-shirts that are, I think, 50% organic cotton and 50% hemp viscose material, which is pretty cool. So yeah, if we can do that, then then absolutely. I think you're right. The brand, the branding is, it does seem to stick in people's minds and they do enjoy it. So yes, yeah. I've, this is, might be the first time Kirsten's actually hearing me say, yes, let's go ahead and do that. So she's really smiling right now. <laughs> oh my gosh. More okay. merch, more merch. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're making progress here on Superfruit Sundays. This is absolutely. the place to launch. <laughs> new ideas i want a hat wow last but not least it's the best question ever um <laughs> really like it a lot and it has to do with really who both of you are as people your motivations your energy what gets you up in the morning what's created this spark how to keep the spark alive professionally personally all those different things i would love to know what is your woo what is that grounding force that keeps the crazy at bay I am a very energetic person, so I need to make sure that I get out and do something most days. I had two hip surgeries last year, so that sort of slowed me down, which made me a little bit probably more crazy because I couldn't actually do what I wanted to do, but love being active, yoga, snowboarding, getting I ran my first mile in over a year today. So that was really exciting. And then because we live in Cleveland and it's pretty cold in the winter, I got really into sauna blanketing. Whoa. So I would say... Tell us more. <laughs> that, um, yeah, I got hooked on it with my cousin. It's basically like an infrared 
sauna sleeping bag. So Carl got me one for Christmas this year and it's really a good recovery tool and also just so relaxing. So at the end of a long day or at the end of a long day of production, just sort of cozying up, putting on some cool house music and chilling for 45 minutes in the sauna blanket is probably my most woo-woo chill method. Imagine for a moment you were a marinated braised mushroom inside a burrito. I love that. I feel like you take so much of the coolness from the ice cream that then you want to go in the opposite direction and just completely melt. Is that Yeah, when you're doing inventory in a minus 20 warehouse, your bones are cold. So hopping in the sauna blanket is a really good antidote to that. I love it. Woo woo with doozy pots. All right, Carl, what is, yeah, what's your woo woo? What you got? I am afraid my answer is probably pretty boring. I, I draw a lot of energy from the fact that we're building this business together as a couple. I find it really motivational to be doing that as a team. I think it's helped us grow as a couple and I get a lot of energy from that. I also make sure I get enough sleep. <laughs> For me, sleep is a huge, has become even you know more and more important the older I've gotten. And I can see the value day to day of getting a good, Whatever you need as a person, everyone varies. But for me, it's probably, cousin's going to laugh. I say seven and a half hours. She's probably going to tell me it's more than that. But It's more than eight and a half. Okay. But, anyway. <laughs> but honestly, I, the days that I have slept, I can feel the difference. and it, It's really noticeable. And then again, this is not a particularly, maybe this is not a wholesome answer, but I really just get joy out of doing our work and building our business. The small wins give me a lot of motivation. The challenges feel like something to overcome and, also motivational in a different way. And I just, I have that, an ability to stay focused on something probably for too long, but that's the way I, I kind of work. And as you're probably hearing, we have slightly different working styles and that's actually great because it makes us do things differently sometimes than we would otherwise do them. And, and I think that leads to growth. So yeah, not a particularly interesting woo-woo answer, but that's, that's how I get through things. <laughs> His ability to focus is unrivaled. I have that sometimes but at the end of the day I need to get up and go do something and expend some energy in order to get back to it and focus but Carl could go to his desk and be in deep focus for hours and I would love to be able to do that at some point but that is not how my brain works and I listen to a lot of electronic music that's my go-to as well so EDM love and just the ultimate goal is your woo-woo yeah I think so I love it. Kirsten, any thoughts? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> that... yeah, I feel like you really outshined me on that. My woo. <laughs> like... hey, everyone's different. Everyone's different. You got to do what works for you. I would say we call Carl chief voice of reason. He's pretty unflappable, which is great to have on your team, especially as a doozy pots. Um, <laughs> there can only be, there's really only room for one doozy pots here on this team, or it would be, probably a nightmare. So Carl himself is, is a very grounding, chill presence. And if ever I'm like really about to fly into tornado, he's always stop, think about this, which in the moment can be annoying because you're like, no, just, just <laughs> you let can me do go the crazy. accent though. <laughs> yeah, that helps. Absolutely. That helps. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. You're each other's woo woo in a way. Oh, I knew this was going to happen. The very first couples pod, you guys have <laughs> broken the seal and come to find out the woo-woo is within both of you together. Person, <laughs> Carl, this is Ben. Learn more at superfoodschool.org.